All right, uh, let's talk about Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, now, Shakespeare's sonnet sequence uh, is very different from some, most of the other sonnet sequences, certainly different from uh, Sidney's, uh, in that it has a very different uh, addressee. Uh, most of the sonnet sequences are addressed to a beautiful, unattainable woman. But Shakespeare's sonnet sequence has two different uh, two different sections. The bulk of the poems, uh, the first ones and the ones we'll look at today, are addressed to a fair young man. And then starting around sonnet 127, he begins to address a a dark lady, uh, and both she's an unappropriate uh, uh, object of his desire for other reasons that we'll talk about. Uh, and the sonnets start out not directly trying to woo or uh, tell about how much, uh, uh, try to win the love of the fair young man, but to urge the fair young man to get married. Uh, look at the very first sonnet. From fairest creatures we desire increase, that thereby beauty's rose might never die. But as the riper should by time decease, his tender air might bear his memory. But thou, contracted to thine own bright eyes, feeds thy light's flame with self-substantial fuel, making a famine where abundance lies, thyself thy foe, to thy sweet self too cruel. Thou that art now the world's fresh ornament and only herald to the gaudy spring, within thine own bud buriest thy content and tender churl, makes waste in niggarding. Pity the world, or else this glutton be, to eat the world's dew by the grave and thee. So what Shakespeare is saying here is he's giving an argument for why this this uh, handsome young man should get married and have children. And it says, you know, from fairest creatures we desire increase. Uh, he's echoing Genesis here, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And there your beauty's rose will never die. You will die as you become riper, You by time decease. And note the interesting rhyme of increase and decease. Not decrease, but decease. It's kind of a nice, unexpected, but uh, perfect rhyme there. Uh, so you'll have a tender air to carry on. This is, but that's not how you're doing it. You're contracted, that is a double meaning there, a, a, a contract, like a marriage contract, but your contract is only to yourself, and contracted meaning closed in, uh, you know, self-absorbed. Uh, to thine own bright eyes. Um, so you're not sharing the wealth, you're just using it up. You know, again, making a famine where abundance lies. Uh, and it says, you, you may be a beautiful young man now, uh, but you're, you're, within your own beauty, you're burying your content. And he says that the young man should pity the world and uh, have children that will be little copies of you. Um, now, a couple of things to uh, to note about the the poem. Uh, Shakespeare is really obsessed with antithesis, that is, paired opposites. 
just look at all the the contrasts that happen in the poem between increase and decrease, between ripening and dying, uh, beauty and immortality are opposed to memory and inheritance, uh, expansion and contraction, the inner spirit of the, in his own bright eyes and the outward show of the the rosebud, uh, self consumption and dispersing, you know, sharing the wealth, uh, famine and abundance, hoarding and waste. Uh, Again and again, Shakespeare's imagination thinks in antithesis. He almost can't think of something without also thinking of its paired opposite. And you can see that in in this poem. now this is um, again. It's a you know well constructed sonnet. You know it's, it's a Shakespearean sonnet. It's got the uh, rhyme scheme with uh, four quatrains and a rhymed couplet, rather than the Petrarchan scheme with an octave and a sestet. Uh, and very often, not always, but often, Shakespeare will have the the couplet will be a kind of little uh, a kicker at the end. He'll kind of develop an argument in four in three stages in the uh, quatrains. And then sum it up uh, in the in the couplet as he does here. Uh, the the next poem that we have, uh, poem three, continues this argument to the young man. Look in thy glass and tell the face thou viewest. Now is the time that face should form another, whose fresh repair, if now thou not renewest, thou dost beguile the world. Unbless some mother. So think about the image here. He's looking in his, his glass and, you know, talk to yourself. And you're, you're, this is the time that face should form another. Well, of course, it already has. There, there's the form of his face in the mirror. But he's not talking about that. He wants to have a fresh repair. And if you don't do that, you will uh, beguile the world. You'll unbless some mother. Uh, you won't have some mother won't get be, be the, some woman won't get to be the mother of your children. For where is she so fair, whose uneared womb disdains the tillage of thy husbandry? Or who is he so fond will be the tomb of his self-love to stop posterity? Uh, so he says that any, basically any woman would want to be the father of your children. And what's wrong with you that you are so fond, so foolish, that you would want to be the tomb of your own beauty? Thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. So thou, through windows of thine age, shalt see, despite of wrinkles, this, thy golden time. So the the the, uh, the selling point he has for having children is that they the children become a mirror. You can see your own youth reflected back to you as you get older, despite of wrinkles, he says, but if thou live rememberest not to remembered not to be, die single, and thine image dies with thee. So uh, this is, gives you a flavor of these opening sonnets, and there, uh, there's a whole, really the first 16 or 17 sonnets are in this vein. They are talking about 
uh, time is passing you by, you need to get married, you need to have children. Now, that's an odd thing for sonnets to be about. Sonnets are usually about romance. Uh, this is not a, it's not a romantic relationship he's having with the, the young man at this point. He's just saying that you're, you're, um, you're so special, uh, you're so fair, that you need to have children so that they can, uh, y- there will be more copies of you in the world. Let's look at Sonnet 15, which kind of continues, but puts a slightly new spin on these themes. When I consider everything that grows holds in perfection but a little moment, that this huge stage presenteth naught but shows, where on the stars in secret influence comment. When I perceive that men, as plants, increase, cheered and checked even by the self-same sky, vaunt in their youthful sap, at height, decrease, and wear their brave state out of memory. Then the conceit of this inconstant stay sets you most rich in youth before my sight, where wasteful time debateth with decay to change your day of youth to sullied night, and all in war with time for love of you, as he takes from you, I engraft you new. So this is a a different kind of argument. He's talking about the the uh, the poem is about the impermanence of things, as the earlier poems have been, but now. Notice in that end, he's not saying that the the way to immortality is to have children. Now the way to immortality is through the poet's own verse. As time takes from you, I engraft you new. I will my my poem will let you live again in verse. And this poem has a. Uh, more of a Petrarchan sonnet rhetorical structure. It's a when-then poem. So the first, it has really an octave, when I consider, when I perceive those first two quatrains are really a single idea. And then there's a turn at line nine. Then the conceit of this inconstant stay. So even though the rhyme scheme is Shakespearean, the rhetorical structure is Petrarchan. And Shakespeare would would do that quite frequently. He would kind of mix things up. He always had the same rhyme scheme. He never altered that. But he very often uh, would change the internal structure. Sometimes it would uh, align with the rhyme scheme. Uh, sometimes, as here, it, there would be a different structure on top of it, which just makes the poem uh, that that much richer and more interesting. And look at the... Um, those uh, the, the starts the starting phrases of the three quatrains. When I consider, when I perceive, then the conceit. Uh, get, you get when, when, then, and the words consider, perceive, and conceit. So conceit kind of fits together the first part of consider and the last part of perceive. Conceit perceive, consider. So e- even just with the sounds of the words, he's weaving together the texture of the poem in, in a more complicated way than we've seen with, with Sidney or with the other sonnets that we've read. And look at the series of metaphors he has here. When I consider everything that grows, 
So he's thinking about life, things that grow, holds in perfection, but a little moment. Um, now, holds in could mean like put a wall, puts a wall around, or stays in perfection, holds that moment of perfection. Uh, it means basically the same thing either way, but that little kind of shimmering ambiguity also makes it a, a, a richer poem. Also, the, the poem kind of expands as you read it. When I consider everything, now that phrase, that, that, that's universal, when I consider everything that grows, right? Now it's been made smaller. Everything that grows and through the enjambment, the line goes on, the sentence goes on past the line end. Everything that grows holds in perfection, um, so just as the kind of word by word reading it, 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 the sense of it alters a bit as we're going through the lines. So the first image is one of of, of growth of of plants, maybe um, that this huge stage. Now we have a theatrical metaphor, not surprising for Shakespeare. Presenteth not, but shows wherein the stars in secret influence comment. So the, the stars are uh, kind of controlling our destiny. The, the stars and secret influence, that's uh, similar to the image we saw at the end of, of uh, Dr. Faustus. When I perceive that men as plants increase, oh, okay, now we're going back to the everything that grows image, like plants increase, cheered and checked even by the self-same sky, Okay, well, the sky kind of goes back to the idea of the stars and the heavens. So now we're intermingling the images. Vaunt in their youthful sap. Okay, that's a plant metaphor again. At height, decrease. And wear their brave state out of memory. Okay, at height, that sounds more astrological. You think about the, the high point of the sun or a, a, of a, a planet. Um, it says, and wear their brave state out of memory, uh, now we've got the... Uh, brave here means splendid or beautiful, as it usually does in the Renaissance. It doesn't mean courageous. Um, well, wearing brave clothing, that fits in with the theatrical metaphor, right? This huge stage. Uh, so it, the point is that Shakespeare keeps the... Uh, he doesn't have a single metaphor that he develops. He has several different ones that echo and overlap each other. It's again, it's a more complicated way of interweaving the imagery in the poem. Um, it says, then the conceit of this inconstant stay, uh, this, the inconstant stay echoes the idea of holds imperfection, a stay or a hold or a kind of a, a, a you know, a momentary uh, protection against the onslaught of time. Um, and a wasteful time debateth with decay. So time and, and decay are arguing, but they're not really arguing, they're agreeing, right? Time and decay are almost the, the, the same because they're, they're debating to change your day of youth to sullied night. Notice we've gone back to the astrological imagery, day and night. Um, and then the final, the couplet, all in war with time for love of you, as he takes from you, I engraft you new. To engraft, that's a, 
botanical metaphor, right? You graft on something to improve the the plant. Um, so again, this is an example of how uh, how kind of dense and rich the imagery of of Shakespeare's poetry can be. Now let's look at one of the most famous sonnets, uh, Sonnet eighteen. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease has all through short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Now, this is a poem that also falls into an, an octave and a sestet. It has that turn at line nine, but. Um, and it starts off with a, a very cliched uh, comparison. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Well, that, you know, as, as merry as a summer's day was a, 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 a saying in Shakespeare's time. Uh, and he does. And the, he says, you are more lovely and more temperate. I said, you know, you know even a, a, a wonderful summer's day, sometimes it's too windy uh, it's it doesn't you know summer doesn't last too long a day uh, you know it's too it's too short um, sometimes it gets too hot uh, sometimes the gold complexion is dimmed it, it, a summer's day only lasts for a while it's it's temporal it's part of time and every as he says every fair from fair sometime declines uh, but thy eternal summer shall not fade. Um, and says, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade. Now, notice we've, we've changed the argument. Before, in the earlier sonnets, the argument was that, you know, you will die and there will be nothing left of you unless you have children. But now it's not. Now you have this eternal summer. And why is that? Well, look at the couplet. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. So here it is no longer uh, posterity. It's no longer your your heirs or your children that are giving you immortality. It's very explicitly the, the poem itself. As long as men can breathe, that's where they could recite the poem, or eyes can see so they can read it. The poem lives on, and that gives you this eternal summer that will, will never fade or change. And notice, uh, again, the, the whole poem, uh, Shakespeare's love for antithesis, the whole poem is an antithesis between the, the, the brief and compromised real summer's day and the idealized eternal summer that will not fade, that lives in poetry. Uh, so it, the whole poem is based on that kind of an antithesis. Now, uh, most people, you know, aren't aware that the, the that 
very famous poem was addressed not to Shakespeare's lady love, but to this fair young man that he had been telling a few sonnets earlier to go have children. Uh, let's look at Sonnet 20. Um, this is a sonnet that, and as you will see, this is uh, thematically significant. It's the only sonnet that has feminine endings on every line. So there's an extra unstressed syllable, painted, passion, acquainted, uh, gazeth. Uh, there's all, all of them have feminine endings. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou the master mistress of my passion. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change as is false women's fashion. An eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. A man in hue, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a doting, and, by addition, me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mind be thy love, and thy love's use their treasure." All right, let's let's go through this. So he's talking about how beautiful the young man is, and he says you have a woman's face with nature's own hand painted. So you're as beautiful as a woman, but it's not through cosmetics or makeup. This is nature's own hand that has painted this beauty on you, and you are the the master mistress of my passion. Now that's a very resonant phrase uh, in this very androgynous poem. Um, he's the, the young man is both master and mistress. He kind of combines both of those gender roles uh, for the, the, the poet's passion. You have a woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with uh, swift shifting change. This is false women's fashion. Uh, notice again all of the antitheses it's a, a, a woman's gentle heart, but it's not. Uh, their eye is more bright, less false. Um, you're, you're a man in hue, all hues in his controlling. Um, so here, hue and hues, that harks back to the idea in the opening of the poem about painted. Um, but you have a kind of a self-control of yourself, and which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth even there there's a contrast for men it steals their eyes they look at him and but women have, are amazed in their souls it says and for a woman wert thou first created so he's saying you, you at first you were a woman you you were born to be a woman but nature as she wrought thee Fell a doting. Notice nature is female here. So uh, nature has created this beautiful woman, but fell so in love with the the female version that she that Mother Nature turned her into a hymn. Says by addition, me of thee defeated by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. Now that's 
the male genitals. Yeah. So really, you're, you're like you're like a woman, but you've got male plumbing down there, and that uh, that defeated me of you. And he says, but since she pricked thee out, and yes, that's a dirty joke, pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mine be thy love, and thy love's use, their treasure. So the, this fair young man is going to have sex with women. He's for, they will give them sexual pleasure, but his real love will be for the poet. Their lo- the love's use Again, just the physical love will be all the treasure that they get. Um, now, again, this is this is, uh, and the whole fact that so many of these poems are addressed to this beautiful young man have raised a lot of speculation about Shakespeare's own sexuality. And the truth is, we have no earthly idea. Um, there, there's, you know, uh, was Shakespeare gay? Was he straight? Was he bisexual? We don't know. And it's impossible to tell from these sonnets because uh, you can't simply, even if you could simply equate uh, Shakespeare with the speaker of the poems, a poem like this is very ambiguous. He's saying he's not having a physical relationship with this young man, um, but he seems to be attracted to him, but he's only attracted to him because he's so much like a woman uh, it, it's a very, it's a very dizzying and complicated, um, and of course you can't just uh, assume that this is these are autobiographical poems. And beyond that, Shakespeare is perhaps the master creator of characters in literature. Uh, so he could very easily have created this, uh, you know, these poems as being spoken by an imaginary character in his head. Uh, he did that all the time when he wrote plays. Uh, but uh, uh, I generally tend not to care too much about the, a, a poet's biography. I'm more interested in their the, the craft of their uh, their work. And this is a kind of a beautifully crafted and clever poem. Now the. Next two poems uh, to look at, uh, uh, sonnets 29 and 30, are a pair of poems that kind of go together and are in a way kind of variations on a theme. This happens a lot. As we, as with other uh, sonnet sequences, there's not really a simple, coherent narrative story here. Um, it's all a kind of a series of individual lyric moments of emotion that happen. All right, uh, Let's look at Sonnet 29. When, in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself, and curse my fate, wishing me like to one man, one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy, contented least. Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising, haply I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at day of break arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. 
All right. Now, this is another kind of octave and sestet poem. You've got that turn of yet in line nine. And the first half is all about how he feels depressed. He's disgraced uh, fortune or, or fate and men's eyes. So both the kind of the nature, the, the universe and society are against him. He's an outcast. Um, he troubles heaven with his bootless or useless cries. Um, again, he curse my fate, which is the same idea as fortune, right? Um, and then in the, the next quatrain, it talks about all of the things he wishes he had, that he has, like somebody who had more hope. Uh, featured somebody who you know handsome like that guy that like that guy has so uh, so many more friends this man's accomplishments uh, uh, that man's uh, uh, natural abilities uh, art and scope um, and says yet when that happens then I think on thee and and look at what Shakespeare does with the the language here it becomes one long breathless sentence. It's been these short, choppy, in-stopped lines, and then it suddenly becomes, happily I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark of that day, break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. It's all one long, breathless sentence. He's kind of embodied the, the, the change of mood in a change of syntax there. Um, he says, uh, I ch- uh, scorn to change my state with kings. Now, before he talked about his outcast state, his state of being, and state uh, with the idea of kings is almost like I wouldn't change this for being a king, for having a kingdom. Uh, and just the remembrance of his beloved does this to him. Now, notice here, we've gone far afield from the beginning of, of the sonnet sequence. He's no longer talking about the young man or his immortality, uh, whether by having children or by being immortalized in verse. Now he's just talking about his relationship, how inspiring it is to, to know this, this person. Now, look at Sonnet 30 and think about the way that it's taking a similar idea and expressing it in a different poetic way. When to the sessions of sweet silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past, I sigh the lack of many a thing I sought, and with old woes new wail my dear time's waste. Then can I drown an eye unused to flow, for precious friends hid in death's dateless night, and weep afresh love's long-since cancelled woes, and moan the expense of many a vanished sight. Then can I grieve at grievances foregone, and heavily from woe to woe tell o'er the sad account of four-bemoaned moan, which I knew pay as if not paid before. But if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored, and sorrows end. So we have the same reversal. Again, I, I think about myself and the position I'm in, and I get all depressed. But if I think on you, it all changes. But here, the change doesn't come in the middle. It come, It waits until the very ending couplet. But the turn doesn't happen until the couplet. Uh, so again, he's taken the uh, same idea and expressed it in a, in a different form. 
And look again at how he uses antithesis. And with old woes, new wail, uh, my dear time's waste, uh, and weep afresh, love's long since cancelled woe, afresh and long since cancelled. So uh, again, Shakespeare likes to set things in antitheses. Uh, and he's created, in sonnets 29 and 30, again, two uh, expressions of the same idea, but in, in a different poetic manner. Uh, the uh, sonnet 30 really builds up you know, the whole poem until a, a sudden surprising change at the end. It's not a kind of a, a, it doesn't have that break in the middle the way sonnet 29 does. And it also, in, in Sonnet 29, it, it divides into, uh, the, the octave and sestet divide into the, the social world. That's all the things he's talking about in the first eight lines are things that happen in the, in the outside world with the world of nature in the second half, where he talks about the, hearing the lark, uh, sing hymns, all of that is the natural world. Whereas in Sonnet 30, what he's doing is all looking in psychologically. It's all kind of inward turning, not looking out at nature or the social world around him, but looking inside of himself and back into the past. Uh, so it's two different angles on the same idea. All right, let's look at Sonnet 33. Full many a glorious morning have I seen flatter the mountaintops with sovereign eye kissing with golden face the meadows green, gilding pale streams with heavenly alchemy. Anon, permit the basest clouds to ride with ugly rack on his celestial face, and from the forlorn world his visage hide, stealing unseen to west with this disgrace. Even so, my sun, one early morn did shine, with all triumphant splendor on my brow, but out, alack, he was but one hour mine, that re the region cloud hath masked him from me now. Yet him from this my love no whit disdaineth, sons of the world may stain when heaven's sun staineth. Now notice that this poem is an inversion of the emotional arc we saw in sonnets 29 and 30. There, there's a depression that turns to joy. Here it's the opposite. It starts off with the joy that turns to depression. Again, we should be used to this in sonnet sequences. It's often an emotional roller coaster ride. Uh, notice, too, that he has this analogy uh, that being away from you, uh, being knowing you and then being away from you is like a glorious morning and sunrise, but that ends up as a rainy day. But he starts with the the analogy and then tells us what's it, what it's analogous to. So in line nine, even so, my son. But he starts out the analogy, it starts out positive. The first quatrain is all positive. A glorious morning, the, you know, kissing with golden face, gilding, and all of this happens yet anon, Next four lines become negative. They permit the basis clouds to ride. So now, after that beautiful morning, the clouds come in and the weather gets awful. And then in the next quatrain, he makes the analogy. And we get two lines of positive, even so, 
My sun one early morn did shine with all triumphant splendor on my brow. But then the next two lines go negative again. But out alack, he was but one hour mine. The region cloud hath masked him from me now. Then in the couplet, we get an, uh, we get a turn. Yet, him, for this my love no whit disdaineth. And yet, even though I, I you know, the sun shined on me, he was, my, we were great friends, and now we're parted. I, that doesn't diminish my love, or it doesn't make me disdain my love one whit. Sons of the world may stain when heaven's sun staineth. So now the analogy is becomes a uh, an excuse, right? Well, if if the the sun up in the sky can be clouded, then surely my sun, my light here on earth, can also have a, a stain or be darkened. Uh, so the the analogy becomes a way of excusing the the behavior of the beloved. Um, this is one of the many interesting things about this poem is the, that structure, that positive negative structure. It doesn't have it doesn't really fit uh, three quatrains and a couplet. It doesn't have an octave and a sestet. It has its own kind of positive negative back and forth rhythm. Uh, and it keeps contracting, you know, four lines positive, four lines negative, two lines positive, two lines negative. And then we get a turn and a uh, kind of a switch in the couplet. Um, and Shakespeare loved to experiment with the form in that way, to kind of match up the, uh, try different rhetorical forms and uh, place the, the turn in the argument or in the emotion in different places. Now, Sonnet 60, on the other hand, is a poem where the structure of it uh, aligns up very nicely with the, uh, the Shakespearean rhyme scheme. Let's look at that. Sonnet 60. Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end, each changing place with that which goes before. In sequent toil, all forwards do contend. So, the first quatrain is an image of the passing of time, and it's like waves, right? One wave after another, sequent toil. Uh, it's kind of the the relentless, almost mechanical uh, uh, forward motion of time. Um, then the next quatrain. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, wherewith, being crowned, crooked eclipses gainst his glory fight, and time that gave doth now his gift confound. So here's another metaphor for the passage of time. And this is a model of a rise and a fall. So nativity, new birth, is in the, the, the main of light. That's, you know, the brightest shining light. It crawls to maturity, and then being crowned, that's the highest you can get, being a king. Then the crooked eclipses come, and time doth, uh, that gave doth now his gift confound. So it's almost like the idea of a tragedy here. You know, you kind of rise to the top, but then you inevitably fall back down. 
That's a different kind of metaphor for how time works. Then the third quatrain, we get yet another metaphor. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, and delves the parallels in beauty's brow, feeds on the rarities of nature's truth, and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. Now this is the an image of time as kind of purely destructive. It it takes the flourish on youth and sticks a pin in it. Uh, it it, de- it you know draws the parallels in beauty's brow, makes your beautiful face wrinkled. It feeds on the rarities of nature's truth. So here it's kind of eating up the beauties of the world. And finally you get that image of the scythe. That's the image of death, right? He has, death has the scythe and mows down people who are alive. And yet, to times in hope, my verse shall stand, praising thy worth, despite his cruel hand. So the couplet comes in and fights against all of those metaphors of time. The, you know, the time is kind of a, uh, the, the waves, kind of inevitably sequent toil, uh, uh, wearing things down. Time is a, is a tragedy where you rise and then fall. Time is the destructive, the scythe of death coming and mowing you down. Uh, but against all of that, my verse shall stand, praising thy worth despite his cruel hand. So again, poetry becomes the thing that comes in and defeats time. And that, that's a theme that we see a lot in Shakespeare's poetry. Uh, we've seen it already in, uh, in some of the poems that he's like, uh, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? All right, the last poem I want to look at for this session is 71. And this is a poem that is not about the beloved's death, but about the poet's own death or the speaker's own death. No longer mourn for me when I am dead than you shall hear the surly, sullen bell give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. Nay, if you read this line, remember not the hand that writ it, for I love you so that in your sweet thought that I in your sweet thoughts would be forgot if thinking on me then should make you woe. Oh, if I say you look upon this verse when I, perhaps, compounded am with clay, do not so much as my poor name rehearse, but let your love, even with my life, decay, lest the wise world should look into your moan and mock you with me after I am gone." Now, this is, I think, a great kind of reverse psychology poem. It's like, you know, if I tell you, don't think of an elephant, what did you just think of, right? So he's saying, don't think about me after I'm dead. Well, (laughs) that kind of makes it inevitable that you will. And Shakespeare enacts that, that kind of paradox, even the way he sets up the lines in the syntax. Notice that in the first quatrain, every line it could be a complete sentence, but then continues on, is enjammed into the next line. So, no longer mourn for me when I am dead. That's a complete sentence. 
but it turns out not to be a complete sentence. It goes on. No longer mourn for me when I am dead, then you shall hear the surly sullen bell. So don't mourn for me past the time you hear the bell. That's also a complete sentence. No longer mourn for me when I am dead, then you shall hear the surly sullen bell. But that's not the end. You shall hear the surly sullen bell give warning to the world that I am fled. That's also an end of a complete thought, but it goes on. Give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. So the sentence keeps going on past the point where you think it's over, which, of course, is exactly what the poem is about. It's about the memory of the poet living on even after he's dead, even though he's saying that he doesn't want it to. Um, you know, He says, if you read this line, remember not the hand that writ it. Well, how I no one can read that line without thinking about the hand that wrote it. I mean, that's just the, kind of the the way language works. Um, he says, "I would, you know, I would be forgot." Um, and says, "If you do look at this, do not so much as my poor name rehearse." Um, and you know, you probably hear a, an echo of the word "hearse" in there, uh, right? Rehearse. Um, he says, but don't, oh, don't, don't even repeat my name. Well, of course, anyone reading that is going to think of the poet's name. Um, and the reason for all of this, the kind of the punchline is, lest the wise world should look into your moan. If you do mourn for me, the, the wise world will see you crying and moaning and grieving and taking on and mock you with me after I am gone. So notice that that's a way for the two of them to be together, even after he's dead. The world will be mocking us together. And it also implies that the poet had been uh, you know, emotionally uh, involved with the, the addressee of this poem, uh, and now they're both together. Um, and you don't see it here, but Shakespeare takes this even farther because Sonnet 72 is an, an exact, it picks up right where Sonnet 71 left off. So even though you think it's over, it's still not over. It goes on into Sonnet 72. It, it, it's the, that, the whole theme of things that you think are ended but really are not. Uh, you, you'll love me after I'm gone. Um, again, this is a, a clever poem. And also, it's one about his troubled relationship with the beloved, uh, which is more like what we typically see in a, in a sonnet sequence. Uh, though again, Shakespeare tends to do that with a, a, a more clever spin on it than we've seen in some of the other poems. Um, all right, well, we will end there, but there are another oh, 11 poems that will be sonnets that we'll be looking at for next time. And as you're looking through them, uh, you'll notice in this next batch, we'll get to some of the poems that are addressed to the what, what uh, critics call the, the dark lady. And think about how his relationship with the lady uh, is different 
than this relationship he has with the fair young man. Uh, from Sonnet 127 on, they're all about the, the lady. And see how the tone and the imagery and, again, the relationship is different in those poems. And look in all the poems, as, as we have been doing here, about how, how Shakespeare structures them. Uh, how he kind of lays out his arguments and how he uses the structure of the poem to convey them. So we'll be talking about all that good stuff for next time on Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, if you have questions, uh, address them to drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you later.